Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. It's in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, if you'd follow along, please. Very familiar story. But as we read this, I hope that you will never lose the wonder of it all. I mean, these are very familiar words to many of us, but don't lose the wonder of what's being revealed here. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then she spoke out with a loud voice saying, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And this is the very word of the living God. Today, as best I can tell, is my 42nd Christmas series. And uh, I've looked at Christmas from all different angles over the years. I've covered the different aspects of Christmas, from the prophecies in the Old Testament to the accounts and events in the Gospels to the uh, explanations in the epistles. I've considered the men, the women, the angels in and around the Christmas account. And hopefully, my goal has always been for each message to see what the Bible reveals about Jesus, who he is, and why he came. And I'm certainly by no means suggesting that I've exhausted everything the Bible has to say about the revelation of Christmas. That's certainly impossible. However, this year, I sort of feel like the classic story about Coach Vince Lombardi and his uh, Green Bay Packers. In July 1961, Lombardi kicked off his first day of training camp. The previous season, the Packers had experienced a heartbreaking loss to the Philadelphia Eagles after leading in the fourth quarter of the NFL 
championship game. This was before the Super Bowl. When the players sat down, Lombardi, Lombardi opened training camp by holding up a football and saying, gentlemen, this is a football. They began on page one of the training manual of their playbooks, and they began to learn again the fundamentals of blocking and tackling and throwing and catching. And that year, the Packers won the NFL championship by beating the New York Giants 37 to nothing. So this year, I want to look again at the basics of the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus. So ladies and gentlemen, this is Christmas, the, the title of this series of messages. I'm going to be pulling out some of my old Christmas jokes. Some of you have never heard them. Some of you have forgotten them. Some of you wish you never heard them. But you're going to hear some of them again. Like when you're little, you believe in Santa Claus. When you get married and have children, you become Santa Claus. When you get old, you look like Santa Claus. Like the little boy who ran into the kitchen with a great big box, and he was all excited and breathless, and he said to his mom, Mama, Mama, we, we, we have to tell Santa Claus to cancel my order for the train set. I just found one in the closet on the top shelf of Daddy's closet. Some of us have had that experience. I remember one Christmas, our son was a young teenager, and he guessed every Christmas gift before he opened it. He knew what it was. Smart aleck. But anyways, so this is Christmas. And so where do you begin? Well, we could begin in the Old Testament, but I've chosen to begin with the account of Gabriel's visit to Mary of Nazareth. The gospel writer is Luke, and it's interesting how God chose Luke to give us the details of the conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke, we believe, wrote his gospel around A.D. 60. Luke was not an apostle. He wasn't even an early follower of Jesus, but he was a companion of the apostle Paul, and Luke was a Greek. Ramsey, in his classic work, St. Paul the Traveler and Roman Citizen, writes, an early Christian did not cease to be a man or a citizen. When Luke became a Christian, he continued to be a Greek. You know, we come to Christ, we don't cease to be who we are. Uh, we are a believer, but we're in the world, but not of the world. Luke's a fascinating individual. We know that Luke also wrote the book of Acts. So if you take the book of Acts and you take his gospel, Luke wrote 52 chapters of the New Testament, which comes up to about a third of the New Testament, rivaling the Apostle Paul, who also wrote a little over a third of the New Testament. Now, what's unique about Luke, because he wrote the, the gospel account and then he wrote the, the book of Acts, so he sort of has, you might look at it as two volumes. So if you take the two volumes of Luke, it's the most complete overview of early Christianity that we have. I mean, Luke begins with the conception, and then we'll see later the birth of John the Baptist. Then he takes us all the way in the book of Acts to the capital of the Roman Empire, Rome, when Paul takes the gospel to Rome. So this spans a historical period of over 60 years, the beginning and early life of the church was included in there. Now, in typical Greek fashion, if you go into Luke, you can see certain things about him that are characteristic of Luke's gospel, one of which is, as a Greek, he loves the sea. 
So when you're reading through the book of Acts in particular, even in the Gospels, he's always mentioning harbors and he's always excited about uh, anything that has to do with the sea and uh, as sort of a characteristic of Luke in his writings. Another thing that is unique about Luke is he never mentions himself by name, not in his gospel, not in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you have what we call the we passages, but he never mentions himself by name in either one of those writings. Now, Luke also is called the beloved physician by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4. So Luke was a very educated man, and he was a physician. Isn't it interesting how God, though we, we see the miraculous in Scripture, particularly when it comes to the story of the conception and then the birth of the Lord Jesus, but yet at the same time, God uses a physician as the person to whom he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this vital information. Now, if you go back to Luke chapter 1 and you look at those first four verses that uh, begins the Gospel of Luke, inasmuch as I've taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. Seems good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very beginning, from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed." Now, if you're reading this in the original language, you would see there's a difference in those first four verses, which actually is one sentence in the original language. And that one sentence is written in literary classical Greek, while the rest of the gospel is written in what we might call common Greek. So the prologue reveals to us that Greek, or excuse me, that Luke saw his gospel as a piece, as a literary classic, held up there along with the other classics even beyond that, because we know it is the Word of God, the other classics of his time. And the prologue reveals that Luke was a very careful historian, and he based his gospel on eyewitness accounts. So if Jesus died and rose again, 30, 33 years of age, and he's writing in A.D. 60, that's only some three decades after these events occurred, which if you know anything about ancient literature, that's pretty amazing. And so Luke's writing from eyewitness accounts. How else would Luke write in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. How would he know that unless Mary revealed that to Luke? Luke is writing history about history. This isn't a myth. It's not a fable, as some people want us to believe. This is a historical fact. And even though the Gospels are historically accurate, they are not simply historical narratives. The word gospel comes from the Greek word, which means good news, or to tell good news. They have been described as thematic portraits of Jesus Christ. So they set forth not just a biography, but a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who you can see through their writings. Now, even though that's true, it's very helpful to know something about the geography, something about the culture as we're moving through the text, the customs of the day. 
So first of all, I want to look at the time, the messenger, the place, and the person. Verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So the time reference is the sixth month, but we learn it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the mother of John the Baptist. And this becomes important as we will see as we move through the text. The divine messenger is the angel Gabriel, very significant angel in both the Old and New Testaments. He's the angel we heard John read who announced the birth of John the Baptist. The last time we see Gabriel is in the Old Testament. Before that, it's in Daniel 9.21. It's Gabriel who gives to Daniel the famous 70 weeks prophecy. That includes the first coming of Messiah, his crucifixion, and the destruction of Jerusalem. And we believe there's one more period of the 70 weeks prophecy. 69 weeks have been, seven-year periods have been fulfilled There's one more seven-year period yet to be fulfilled. We believe it is the Great Tribulation. So it is a sweeping prophecy which passes through our age and we see coming into yet the future. Well, the place is the city of Nazareth in Galilee, Galilee being the northern part of Israel at that time. The main road for traffic between Egypt and the interior of Asia comes through and runs by Nazareth and going then northward to Damascus. And so sometimes we think of, you know, Nazareth as just this little out-of-the-way place. In some ways it was, some ways it wasn't, because people from many nations would have walked its streets in the time of Jesus. Nazareth also overlooks what is called the Plain of Jezreel, where according to Revelation 16 and Revelation 19, the Battle of Armageddon will be fought there. I never really realized that until Sally and I went to Israel in 1990, and we drove across that valley, massive valley. Napoleon said the armies of the world could maneuver there. Then we went up this very steep uh, hillside and went into the city of Nazareth, which literally overlooks the valley of Jezreel. But Nazareth was also what was called back then a priest center. David had divided the priests of Israel into 24 courses or sections. And then from time to time, as a certain section of priests would be called upon, it would be their turn to go down and to minister in the temple. Many times they would congregate at a certain town and then they would travel together, those that could go at that time. And Nazareth was one of those towns. Alfred Edersheim writes, There's a double symbolic significance attached to Nazareth, since through it passed alike those who carried on the traffic of the world and those who ministered in the temple. I'm always amazed as I study the Bible, and you see that, yes, God works in miraculous ways, but how God will use certain things in culture, uh, certain things that are true in, in his own day, and, and how he applies these, and it helps us so much to get greater understanding from the word of God. Well, the person is obviously a Jewish maiden named Mary. Now, Luke, when he introduces us to her, she is twice called in the original language of Parthenon or Parthenos, which means virgin. And Luke, the doctor, 
is emphasizing the fact that Mary indeed is a virgin. This has massive implications because it's not unusual that this young lady would be a virgin at this time in her life in this culture, very likely 13, 14, 15 years of age. So try to get that in your mind. A lot of times when we see uh, the reenactments, she looks like she's in her you know, young 20s. Culture, we don't know for sure, but it's very likely she was just a teenager at this time. We find out she's betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. We would understand that in our culture as engaged, but back in that culture, betrothal meant something a lot more. It was an actual legal contract. The parents would get together. They would make up a legal contract, the parents of the groom, the parents of the bride-to-be. And to break that betrothal required a bill of divorcement. This was a big deal in that culture at that time. The couple would certainly be, still be called husband and wife. They would pretty much stay apart. They would communicate through what was known as the friend of the bridegroom. See Jesus alluding to that in John 3, 29. Sometimes these betrothals periods would last a year. So the young man, he's going to his father's house. He's adding a room, room on <coughs> to the home for he and his new bride to live in. Not always, but many times. And then at the proper time, he would, in a procession, go to the father's house, her father's house. He would get his bride, and in procession, they would go back to his father's house, and they would consummate and celebrate the marriage union. And so to break an engagement, a betrothal, was a very, very serious matter. And if any unfaithfulness was discovered in the bride-to-be, this brought incredible shame upon her, upon her family, upon the young man and his family. Because back at that time, people didn't just look at marriages between a man and a woman. It was two families who were being united together. And in many ways, in certain circles, we still look at marriage that way. So this would bring the highest shame. Don't pass over that lightly. Don't pass over that lightly. We hear this story and we, we've heard some of these things before and we just tend to sort of dismiss it. These are real people living in a real time. This is, a, this is something that Mary assumed because she was obedient to the Lord. And Lord willing, we'll see that Joseph also assumed this. People would naturally at first think that she was pregnant to Joseph. And who's going to believe their accounts that, no, this is a pregnancy by the Holy Spirit? And so both families would be shamed by this. And yet they faithfully and patiently endured that. So when Gabriel first comes to Mary, he gave her a comforting greeting, verse 28. Having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Now the English Standard Version reads, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The older manuscripts do not have that last phrase. may have been borrowed from Elizabeth's greeting in verse 42. But either way... The words in the original language do not mean full of grace. That is not what that means. 
Um, that phrase comes from a translation called the Latin Vulgate. It was translated to promote the belief that Mary is a dispenser of grace. Mary is not a dispenser of grace. The only person described in the Bible who is full of grace is Mary's son, Jesus, John 1.14. Now, it's striking that nothing about Mary's character is revealed here. Verse 29, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and consider what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, I believe that Mary must have been a faithful young maiden, probably obedient to her parents, probably devout in her worship of Jehovah. But we have to understand what this is saying and what it is not saying. It is not saying that Mary was full of grace, and so that's why God chose her. Mary was favored because God chose her, not because of any special piety that merited this blessing. The veneration of Mary was not around until the fourth century of the church age. This came about later on. God was about to bestow a grace upon Mary which no one ever received before or since, that she would be the mother, human mother, of the Son of God, the one to carry in her womb, the one who descended from heaven to be the Savior of the world. You see, grace means undeserved favor, undeserved favor. Note the revelation Gabriel tells Mary she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. His very name Jesus, Joshua, Josiah, meaning Jehovah saves, identifies why Jesus came. He came to the earth to save sinners. And I'm very happy about that because <laughs> I'm a sinner and you are too because there's none righteous, no, not one. And we cannot save ourselves. We need a savior. And so Jesus is both the son of God and the Messiah of Israel. No wonder Philippians says, God the Father has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus will be both the Son of God and the Messiah of Israel. Now, he didn't become the Son of God in Mary's womb, and he didn't become a person in Mary's womb. You know, if your kids ever ask you, where was I before I was born, Dad, Mom? The answer is nowhere, because <laughs> you didn't exist until your mom and dad came together. Um, you didn't exist. You weren't a person. Not so with Jesus. Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity. He didn't get his personhood from his mother. He got human nature being plant planted in Mary's womb. But Jesus Christ is the eternal I am seen in the Old Testament. 
God chose to bring his son into the world through the nation of Israel. The words throne, house, and kingdom come from God's covenant promise to David in 2 Samuel 7.16. Now notice Mary's question, verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how, how can this be since I do not know a man? Uh, some of your versions have, since I am a virgin, means the same thing. Mary's question here was not one of unbelief, but of inquiry. Her question was, how? You know, I, I'm a virgin. I only know of one way for a virgin to become pregnant. And how is this going to happen? Am I going to marry Joseph and then uh, completely? Is this going to be the product of, of our marital union? She, she doesn't know. So verse 35, the angel answers her. The angel answered and told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Gabriel reveals that Mary's conception would not be the result of human procreation, but of supernatural intervention. That a virgin could be with child without a human father. There was a man named Dick Lucas, he's, I think he's still living, and, and he's a pastor, and at times he would teach uh, young pastors. And he used to use an illustration, I've used it before. He would go up and on a whiteboard just draw a straight line, straight line. And he would say, this is the Bible, this is the Word of God. You add anything to the Bible, you go above the line. You take anything away from the Bible, you go below the line. And he would tell young pastors, hold the line, hold the line. Now, some want to deny that the virgin birth. I can't believe that. That's, that's a myth. That's a fable. That's, that's below the line. You're taking something away from Scripture. Others want to add to the line and talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary, the immaculate conception of Jesus. What that means is they teach that Mary was sinless. Mary was not sinless. They teach that her virginity was perpetual. The Bible says, you know, they came together and he didn't know her, Joseph, until, until Jesus was born. And there are different accounts in the Gospels where you see Jesus' natural brothers, half-brothers, and half-sisters. Well, here at Grace Bible Church, we hold the line. We only teach what the Bible teaches, we don't add to it. We don't take away from it. Now, sometimes it amazes me, as long as I've been in the ministry, and as many times as I've looked at this passage of Scripture, it was only in studying this that it suddenly dawned on me, because another pastor pointed it out, that what you have in this one verse, we have the Trinity in one verse. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit... The power of the highest, that's God the Father, will be called the Son of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in one verse, talking about how's it going to be that a virgin can conceive in her womb and bear a son named Jesus. The very power of the Trinity will accomplish this miracle within Mary's womb. 
The word overshadow carries the idea of the powerful presence of God. When you look at the three accounts in the Gospels of the transfiguration of Jesus, and Peter, James, and John went up to the mountain with him, uh, this word is used to describe how a cloud came and overshadowed the disciples. It's the idea of the powerful presence of God coming upon someone. That's what happened to Mary. And this harkens back to creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word, uh, the word hovering means brooding. It reveals a divine agency preparing to bring order and beauty out of chaos. If um, I know some Christians struggle with uh, evolution. They have a hard time accepting the biblical account because of all the so-called scientific evidence for evolution, which they really don't have. If you believe in evolution, not creation, what exactly are you celebrating at Christmas? You say, what did the two have to do with each other? If you can't believe that God could speak the world into existence out of nothing... How can you believe that God can cause Jesus, who descended from heaven, to enter the womb of a virgin, to be conceived in that womb? How can you accept one and not accept the other? Or is Christmas just a holiday and you've never really given much thought about how did all this occur? When we talk about Joseph in Matthew 1, the angel will tell Joseph, do not be afraid to take to you marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Conceived in her is the very powerful presence of the triune God, particularly in the person of the Holy Spirit. Virgin conception of Jesus was miraculous, never to be a repeated event in time and space never to be repeated again. This was a miraculous event. And there's beautiful restraint, isn't there, in Gabriel's explanation. What a profound reality. I mean, this is how the Word of God works. You see, we live in a time when there's nothing that's sacred. Nothing is off limits. If we even suggest that, you're called puritanical. Our culture takes what is beautiful and sacred and profanes it and runs it into the gutter. Where the Bible takes something that is just unfathomable and overshadows it with mystery. But it is a profound mystery. So here you are, young teenager. You are, and I don't, we don't know. We weren't told the inside story about when did Mary actually realize she was pregnant. I would suspect that the conception was supernatural. The progression of the baby and the birth was natural. And so, ladies, you probably have a, a sense of that. And so, who could Mary talk to about this? We don't know, but presumably she 
talk to Joseph because we'll find out in Matthew 1, Joseph found out about the fact she was pregnant. Could she go to her parents and say, I'm pregnant, but it wasn't Joseph or anybody else. It, this is a miracle. I'm to be the mother of the Messiah. Again, we're talking about real people um, in a real culture. So God is so gracious that even the angel, as he gives this announcement to Mary, he says in verse 36, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. This is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And we discover that Mary rushes to Elizabeth's side. Isn't God good? There was only one person right now in the world that could really comprehend and believe Mary at face value, and that would be Elizabeth. Because though that was a different kind of miracle, it was still miraculous like Abraham and Sarah after the age of childbearing had Isaac. It was still a miraculous event. And only Elizabeth could relate to Mary and understand Mary and how God was so gracious to Mary. He didn't just, you know, he doesn't just leave us out in the cold. He just has a way of bringing the right people around us. And God cares about us so much. And then these are some of the most profound words in all of Scripture. Then Mary said, can I have some more information? I mean, could you run that by me one more time? She didn't say that, did she? She asked how. Gabriel gave her an explanation. And Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, a lot of people want to venerate Mary and make Mary out to be someone she's not. I'll tell you right now, Mary of Nazareth would be horrified with what people have done with her. But those of us who are believers and we know the Bible and we know what the Bible says and doesn't say about this Mary, that she is a Jewish maiden that God chose to be the mother of Jesus' human nature. She's not the mother of God. But what an example for us to follow. You don't need to be a young lady to follow this example. This is an example for every one of us as believers. Mary said, according to your word, you know, let it, let, I don't understand. You think Mary understood all of this in the, those brief few, few moments? But she, she, she understood this was an angel from the Lord. She understood God gave her enough information that she could believe by faith. And by the way, he's given you enough information that you can believe by faith. If you're waiting till you understand it all, till you accept Christ as your Savior, you will never accept Christ as your Savior. You say, I can't, I, I can't believe it. Well, you won't really understand it. You say, I can't, I can't believe it because I don't understand it, and you won't understand it until you believe it. We're to come by faith. Not blind faith. God has given us plenty of evidence about the gospel. That Jesus Christ is who he said he was. That he lived a sinless life. That he died on the cross. Not for his sin, because he didn't have any sin. He died for my sin and for your sin. That he was buried according to the scripture. That he rose again the third day. I mean, what more proof do you need than a man comes back from the dead? That's who Jesus Christ is. And the fact that he 
is coming back again one day. I want to um, leave you with this one final thought. The conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary began Jesus' humiliation, his humiliation. Jesus says in the Gospels, I came down from heaven. I'm the one that came down from heaven. And um, that was part of his condescension and humiliation to, to become a, a human being, and, and a little baby in the womb, to go through presumably nine months of pregnancy and development and be born as a baby. That, doesn't, that, doesn't that just wow you? I hope you never get over the, the wonder of it, that, you know, he, he spoke the universe into existence, and he permits himself to be born as a baby, laid in a cattle stall, and uh, he did this for you, and he did it for me. That's how much God loves you. If you've never realized that, we hope you realize that today.